So, friends, how would you complete this sentence? For me, for to me to live is blank, and to die is another blank. What would you put in that first blank that you're living for? If you're a politician, it could be to be elected. For me to live is to be elected. If you're a teacher, it could be uh, for me to live is to help students understand and to grow. If you're a parent, it might be to, to raise kids well. If you're a kid, it might be to collect Pokemon cards. The possibilities for that blank at the beginning are endless, really, right? I mean, it could be entertainment or sports or pleasure or retire, retirement or, or respect. But, but none of us leaves that sentence blank. Every single one of you here, no matter your age or stage in life, fills in the blank for, for to me to live is So what would you put in that blank? If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that, even just with your phone writing down. What what do you put there? Really, what what I'm asking in the theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is, is what brings you the most joy? And if you don't put Christ in the blank this morning, what what do you put there right now? See, Paul will write, and we'll, we'll see, Lord willing, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You might write, for to me to live is money. And so if, then the second half would be, and to die is being broke. For me to live is marriage, and to die is being alone. For me to live is being respected, and to die is being ignored. What do you put in those blanks? And, and whatever you, you write in those blanks really shows what brings you the most joy. I mean, really, I want you to answer the question, what do, I, what do I live for? Or maybe put it in the negative, what can't I live without? This morning, we get to hear the answer to these questions by the Apostle Paul. This is the second message in the series of, our, our series through Philippians of joyful partnership. And in these verses, we, we get another glimpse into the heart of Paul. And here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust for this morning. We rejoice in Christ as the gospel advances in our sufferings and through our partnership. We rejoice in Christ as the gospel advances in our sufferings and through our partnership. And there's two points here. Really, this this section here, we're going to look at verses 12 through 26. It's just split in half as I see it. First, rejoice because the gospel will advance through our sufferings. And second, rejoice, the gospel will advance through our partnerships. Joy is, is literally at the, at the heart of this passage, in, both in Paul's present sufferings and also in the future salvation for him and the Philippians as they grow in their faith in Christ and in the gospel. And Paul's tone as he writes this letter just radiates sheer joy. It's ironic, actually, as you see the midst of what he's dealing with, that we'll, we'll dive in. But joy is linked to the growth of the gospel in our lives. When we understand how our suffering and our partnership with other Christians in the gospel brings God glory that he deserves, joy will then follow. And so I'm going to read this passage here this morning, and then we'll, we'll launch in. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there placed in front of the seats. You're welcome to take that as a gift. But we're going to be in these verses, so you'll be helped to have a Bible open and following along as we read. 
So I will read this, starting verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so first... We will see Paul's first point here, rejoice, the gospel will advance through our sufferings. Last week, we left off with Paul introducing the letter uh, and sharing his heart and his prayers for the church in Philippi. And now this next section, he wants to update them on his status and let them know how he's doing and and, and his his hope for for the future. Paul is really writing as as a father to to his children, to to state the circumstances, but really to color the picture appropriately so that they can see his circumstances rightly as God sees them. And and Paul's reflex now as a servant of God is to fix his mind on the purposes of God in his life rather than on his immediate circumstances. And he wants to teach the Philippians to do the same in their life, to view their lives and, and the struggles they have through the lens of what the gospel is and what the gospel calls us to do. So he starts off in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. So what has happened to Paul? Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest, they believe, chained to a guard in a residence that he has to pay for, and he can't leave. And why is Paul a prisoner? Simply because of his union with Jesus Christ and his unwillingness to stop preaching the gospel. And so the Romans thought it was best to put Paul away. Let's lock him away. And what they were doing essentially, as Paul says, is giving him more opportunities to preach. This imprisonment of Paul came the same way the accusations made by the Jews when he was in Jerusalem, as you can read in Acts 21. And next week, Lord willing, we we see that, as Paul will say, the Philippians themselves have similar experiences, similar struggles in their ministry. They will experience, experience persecution, and persecution has always happened in every century of the Christian church. Martin Luther and the 16th century reformers dealt with it. The Puritans in the 17th century dealt with it. The 18th century, George Whitfield and John Wesley all were opposed by unconverted religious leaders. 
the social reforms by Wilberforce were opposed by greedy, secular uh, people who saw the, the, the act to abolish slavery as, as bad because it would hurt their profit, it hurt their margins and put them out of business. And the persecution that Paul faces is nothing new. And if we live long enough in this country, in this world, we'll face, face the same outward persecution when we share the gospel. But Paul saw the providential hand of God in his dealings in his life. And we need to be look at, on the lookout for God's providences in our lives when we face those similar persecutions. Now, Paul, instead of being free and being able to head to Spain as, as one of the most gifted missionaries, no, he's stuck in pri- prison now, locked to a guard because of God's providence in his life. And Paul sees this as an opportunity, an opportunity to preach. Paul will make it abundantly clear that the gospel has advanced not in spite of his circumstances in jail, but because of them. We can trust Christ's purposes for our lives even when we don't fully understand what he's doing. Because Paul put the gospel ahead of his own selfish ambition and his desire for comfort and ease, he didn't grow bitter towards the Lord when he was put in prison. He actually, as we read, rejoices. He's happy because he sees God's providential hand in the opportunities that God has given him. He realizes that, that even his imprisonment was by God's choice and for God's glory. And so he embraces the opportunity that God has given and he preaches the gospel where he's at with those that he's chained to. I realize that not many of us here will, will probably experience prison like Paul has. But I do believe that all of us have lived or are living in circumstances that perhaps right now are not our favorite. And that perhaps might feel like prison. Perhaps your career right now is is not what you hoped for. It's not the trajectory you thought you were going to go. And yet you continue to work because you have to pay bills and, and support your family, and yet it's a chore every day. Maybe your marriage is not flourishing like you had hoped. And you're struggling to endure and to fulfill the covenant that you made. Or maybe you're just a kid here and you're going through school and and you're now in high school and it feels like prison. And yet you've got to be there. You've got to endure the, the tests that you have, the struggles that you're facing. See, all the different, and there's many more, all these different circumstances can feel like we're stuck, like we're locked in. And in some ways, we can put our, ourself in the position of Paul. And how are you living? How are you responding to those current circumstances in your life? Do you have the same joyful response to hard providences like Paul does here? Can you see the, the, the hand of God and where he's placed you in this moment? Or are you so focused about all the things you don't like and how right now this, this, is, this situation is not meeting your needs and all you're seeming to do is grow bitter 
and discontent. Can you see possibly how, how God's providential hand is, is actually serving the advancement of the gospel where you are right now? Because you're ready to serve Him no matter where He has you. Or are you, are you so eager to be moved out of this situation because the circumstances aren't right? I, I can't do the things that I want to do. I can't quite serve God the way I want to serve God until the circumstances change. See, friends, God's logic for our life is much different than ours. We assume that the circumstances must be right if we're really going to be effective as Christians in our witness for him. But God isn't waiting for the circumstances to be right. He's committed to producing effective and faithful Christians no matter the circumstances. And are you willing for God to work in you in that way? To serve him no matter what circumstance you're faced well, Paul continues to give more testimony of what the Lord's doing, not only through his imprisonment, but from the effect of his being imprisoned. Verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having been, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak with the word, with, the word without fear. <clears throat> see, Paul's, his, his, his fellow workers see what has happened to Paul, and they hear what, what God's doing through Paul as he's imprisoned, and, and, and that's pushing the gospel to go forward. It's, it's moving down the field because they see that, that Paul, even in the midst of prison, chained to a guard, can still preach the gospel. Then they should have boldness to preach. There's no need for fear when you see that God is ultimately in control and will bring about the gospel's advancement no matter what circumstances we face. If Christ is who we want to please most, then we will be most willing to share Christ no matter where we're at. So friend, what, what will it take in your life for you to be more bold to share the gospel? What would need to change in your beliefs for you to be brave to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Well, these brothers in verse 14 weren't the only ones preaching. Paul gives more testimony of and what's happening. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We need to understand that that Paul wouldn't have said this about these other, other men, these other brothers, if these were not actually preaching a true gospel. He wouldn't say this if they were preaching a defective gospel. He does this later in the book of Galatians just to correct a false gospel. So these, these preaching, these men and women, whoever they are, he doesn't name them, says they're preaching the gospel and Christ is honored, but their motives are off. It's possible to preach the gospel with bad motives. Did you know that? These preach out of rivalry and envy. Rivalry speaks of wanting to prevent a rival to get something, and envy speaks of wanting to gain that something for yourself. And so though these, these preach in a way to, to I think, get, get fame. They want to be known now. Paul's had that, and Paul's in prison, so we're going to preach in a way to step up and get that fame, that accolade for themselves. 
Perhaps they preach in a way that suggests that Paul's suffering in jail was a result of his overzealous activity and that his imprisonment was an unnecessary setback for the advance of the gospel. They might even magnify their own ministry while putting down Paul, oh foolish Paul. It's so sad to see Paul wasting his God-given abilities in prison. He was a little too flamboyant, a little too loud, drew a little too much attention, and he got what he deserved. But my preaching, my preaching is being blessed while Paul is locked away in jail. It's really not too hard knowing our own sinful tendencies to see how envy and rivalry can creep into our motives as well. Here's what we can learn. God can use small-minded gospel preachers to proclaim his gospel, and God can still get the glory. God may choose to use those with mixed motives more than us, so as to prove that it's not so much the messenger, but the message that saves. But this is a warning for us who are in Christ and who desire to serve him. It's a a question to ask yourself, what's behind my service for God? Is it an expression of love for the Savior, or, or really is it just love for ourselves? Do we have mixed motives when we share the gospel or when we're in ministry or serving? Friends, how would you find out if you did? How do you find out if you have bad motives, mixed motives. See, wrong motives are always, always more complex to discern than true motives. Might I suggest an answer to, to find out whether you have mixed motives? It's to lean into the church. To not just come to church as an event on Sunday and skip out, but to lean in and to build relationships with people that are seated right here. That's why we need the church, to refine us, to help us, to direct us. How far do we expect other Christians to be involved in your own spiritual growth? Are any Christians involved in your own spiritual growth? And really, friends, that's, that's an invitation only, usually. Like, come look at me, come speak to me, and observe my life and encourage me. You have to ask that. You have to actually invite people into it. And, and, and I know we've said this before, and I'll say it again. The Christian life is not a solo event. And so if you're living a solo event, friends, you're doing it wrong. You need to have others involved in your life to be known by others who love Jesus, who desire themselves to be known by him and to grow in their faith and their walk with him. And then you invite that into your life. And when that happens, those things, there are a possibility of mixed motives under the surface that we quite can't see, maybe come up to the surface because other brothers and sisters who love us ask good questions out of love and care. When we dive into the church family and we build relationships, I think we see spiritual growth happening in our lives. But Paul refuses here to, to allow this, these bad motive preachers to to really dissuade him in ministry. It's once said that Theodore Roosevelt was quoted saying, comparison is the thief of joy. And I believe he's right. 
And what we read here is that Paul refused to compare himself with others and allow that comparison to eat away his joy in the Lord. He rejoiced simply because Christ is proclaimed. It's easy to let bitterness to set in our souls and, and, and when we see the errors of other professing Christians and we're convinced there's a way, better way to be to doing church. And all of us are susceptible to this. You know, I, I go meet with a, a group of pastors and I hear what they're doing and my, 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 the, the warning lights like in your dashboard are going off thinking, oh, they shouldn't do that, they shouldn't do that. Friends, I can easily seep in that, that I've got the right pattern. This church is, the, you guys made the right choice, by the way. You can easily seep in that way that we are the only one and we're the only ones doing it right. Rather than seeking to glorify Christ, knowing that others do preach the gospel. Are we good at comparing ourselves to other churches and other believers, looking to somehow put them down and elevate ourselves? Or are we really good at rejoicing when other Christians succeed and not us? Are we able to rejoice when a church down the street is just bursting at the seams because of gospel ministry and not us? Do we resent it when others seem to flourish and we just stay the same? You know, one of the reasons why we pray for local churches here every single week is to to remove that seed of bitterness from our hearts. It is a good thing. I praise the Lord. We are not the only gospel preaching church in our area. Can you praise the Lord with me? Isn't that amazing that we are not it? Because if we were the only ones, we'd be in trouble. We, We couldn't handle it. We need other gospel preaching churches, and that's why we pray for them, that it would continue, it would increase, that we would see more gospel preaching churches. If you're visiting this morning, it's your first time, and, and you think maybe this isn't a good fit, come find me. We've got about seven or eight good gospel preaching churches in the area. I would love for you to go visit. Pastors in which I meet with on a monthly basis to pray with, to encourage, because we're not the only one. And the only way we go about not falling into this trap of comparison is by thanking the Lord that the gospel is still preached, not just here, but in other work. See, Paul was joyful in others' gospel success. He rejoiced. And he recognized that it wasn't all just up to him. Paul also dealt with much suffering after he was saved and serving the Lord. But even in the midst of suffering, he was joyful. Why was he joyful? Paul was joyful because he had been captured by someone bigger than himself. For Paul, the most important thing in the midst of terrible tragedy and horrible suffering is that Christ is proclaimed. When life has brought you difficulties and sufferings, what's the most important thing? Don't you long to be captured by something bigger than yourself, a cause of eternal significance, a cause worth suffering or even dying for? Paul's source of joy was not status or accomplishments. His source of joy was a person, the eternal Son of God, who has always been equal with God the Father, but did not use his equality for his own comfort and convenience. He instead humbled himself and became our human brother, 
obeyed the Father even to the point of death on a Roman cross and on the, on the third day was raised to new life and is exalted above everyone, everywhere. Jesus Christ is the hero of Paul's message and Jesus Christ had become the very center of Paul's life. Paul was captured by Jesus Christ. He was enthralled by him. Are you? Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're new to church or you're just kind of figuring things out and religion and the Bible and, and this talk about being joyful and captivated by Christ it just seems foreign to you. Do you realize that you're captivated by something this morning? If it isn't Christ, it's something. It could be your family. It could be your spouse. It could be your desire, your strong desire to be a good, faithful worker. But friends, those, those things won't satisfy you the way that you're made. You and I are made to be fulfilled by more than earthly things. And ultimately, those things won't bring you lasting joy. At least not when joy, at least not the joy you need when suffering comes. Those things seem to fade pretty quickly. The joy, only, that joy only comes through, through knowing and believing Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And so I implore you, friends, if you haven't already, to turn to Christ this morning and find your joy there. To put your trust in him so that when the storms come upon you, you'll be able to understand what true joy is. I would love to talk with you more. I know the other pastors here in our church would love to talk with you. So come find us. But as we see in this first point, these first number of verses, Paul is just, just overwhelmed with joy, rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. Second, in the second half, we're to rejoice because the gospel advances through our partnerships. So what are your plans for the future? What are your plans for the rest of the day, next week? Have you ever heard that question before? Maybe you asked that in conversation. If you were to ask Paul in the midst of this letter, you ask him in the midst of his life, his answer is at the end of verse 18, which in my mind should be part of verse 19. Yes, I will rejoice. That's his plans. In the midst of all that's going on in Paul's life, he, he knows he's going to rejoice. He's going to show joy in, in Christ and what he's done for him. And he says, why? In verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul rejoices. He's, he's wanting to, to plunk this note again in the, in the hearts and minds of the people in Philippi, that even though he's stuck in prison, and he has no freedom, he will rejoice because of what God is doing. It probably shocked the church to, to hear that, that he rejoices in the midst of this. You know, it's a shameful thing to be in prison, still is. But Paul knows why he's there, and he sees what God is doing through it. And Paul's more concerned with the glory of God than his own, and so he rejoices that God's glory and honor is what is driving Paul. And he's thankful, he says, of their prayers and he says that deliverance is coming. 
Paul, his deliverance could mean his release from prison, but it's really unlikely from the context. I don't think he's talking about him escaping prison at this point. It's the same word that's translated salvation later in this chapter, in chapter 2. Paul sees that no matter what happens to him in this life here on earth, he will be delivered. He will be saved eternally. And Paul's confidence soars because he knows that his ultimate destiny is not determined by human opinions, not even the verdict of this mighty emperor in Rome. Paul is seemingly quoting the Old Testament here, and really the book of Job, of which we'll look at in a few weeks. Job, as he gives his final vindication before the Lord in chapter 13, says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. See, like Job, Paul faces an an ordeal that could well end in death. And like Job, Paul is confident that whatever the earthly outcome of his trial, his salvation before God's heavenly tribunal is secure. That's where his heart is and his mind is. And, and it's also worth noting that Paul doesn't say, just say that he'll be delivered through this adversity, but, but that he'll be delivered as a result of it. Paul is so confident that he'll be saved in the last day. And Paul wants his, his converts here in Philippi to continue to pray for him and to rejoice with him that the Lord will help him to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. But he also wants them to know that their prayers are being answered. Paul also desires that Christ would be honored in his body. How is Christ honored in our body? How is Christ honored in our lives? Paul's word for honored here simply means to be made large, to be made big. Honoring Christ means we make him bigger than ourselves. He must increase and we must good, you're still with me. We decrease that Jesus would be be big. And so we honor Christ when what he prizes most is what we prize most. And when we prize what he prizes, we'll rejoice like Paul rejoices here. See, what what we rejoice in is what we value. And when we rejoice in our suffering, it shows others who view our lives, who are observing us, that what we value isn't found on earth. When everything on earth falls apart and you can still sing about God's goodness, you can still say with joy that Jesus is mine, it shows others who watch your life of what you value most. It doesn't mean you walk around with a plastic smile and manufactured happiness. You may be able to say those things weeping. But you're able to rejoice because you know that your life is hidden in God, even if you're pushed to the brink of death. If Christ is your supreme value, your joy cannot be taken from you. You know, I find this section of Paul's letter here so helpful because in these verses, he's inviting his Philippian friends and he's inviting us to observe his inner wrestling with life or death possibilities. 
in his future, not only by to calm their concerns, I'm sure he wants to, as a father, calm their concerns for them, but more importantly, to show them, to teach them how being captivated by Christ's preeminence colors your view and reaction to suffering that comes. Friends, if you're not suffering now, you will. And so these weeks leading up to our preparation for it, this passage in particular, is preparation for you, it's for me. And so Paul writes to us very openly, he says, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, if Paul lived, he would live to know more of Christ, knowing his person, knowing more of what it meant to live for him in every way. If Paul lives, he, he lived to imitate Christ more closely, to become more and more confirmed and conformed to his image and not his own. If he continued to live, he would live to make Christ more known to those that he came to, in contact with. For Paul to live meant to preach Christ more. But if Paul were to die, he would be with Christ. Dying is gain because it means we get to be with Jesus. If your idea of heaven is void of Jesus, it's not heaven. It's just another earthly existence, and friend, it will never satisfy you. It will always disappoint. What makes death gain for a Christian is not that earthly misery is now over, but that heavenly delight of being with Christ has now come. To die in Christ is gain because we get to be with the one who died for us. The joy of seeing our Savior face to face. Paul is saying he's, he's not choosing death as though he's rejecting life, no. No, he's choosing Christ no matter what. Dying is only gainful if we get Jesus Christ. And far from fearing death, as Christians, it should be welcome because the opportunity to be with Jesus Christ. Living is about knowing Jesus Christ more. Dying is better because we will be with Him and we will be like Him fully. But friends, the focus is always on Jesus Christ. If, if your view is just to leave the trouble of earth, then you have the wrong view, and it's not worth. See, Paul is not saying it's been so rough, I just got to get out of this. And we can imagine him wanting to say that, Right? especially if those seated here have been in the midst of suffering or have dealt with it, just wanting to escape that. But that Paul's not saying, I want to escape the hardness. Paul's saying, I love Christ so much that whether I live, I will live for Him, or whether I die, I get to be with Him. See, it's all about Jesus Christ. And he's going to expand on this even more in the book in chapter 3. Paul continues the wrestling there in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means 
fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed. Do you you pick it up here? Paul, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Can you, can you hear the tone of a, of a father wanting to share his life with this dear church? Paul knows that if he stays in the world, there's going to be more fruitful labor for him to accomplish. And his fruitful labor in gospel ministry in prison, in prison or, or freedom, he's going to have opportunity to, to preach Christ. But Paul sees that his life is really not his own. His life is only for the glory of Christ. See, the gospel so captivates him that he seems to only think in terms of sharing the gospel with others. And that determines what he will do with his life. Whatever labor he's called to, as long as God is glorified, he's ready to serve. He's ready to go. Friend, do we think of our lives that same way? Are we that captivated to Jesus Christ that we're willing to go and to serve no matter where he takes us. You feel this tension though, right? I mean, Paul recognizes he wants to do this. He's been doing this since that moment in Damascus when, when Jesus saved him, serving him, and yet he, he recognizes he loves Christ so much that he's willing to depart. And Paul is like a traveler on a narrow road with walls of rock on both sides, unable to turn either way. Each side pushes forcefully on him, and he longs to be with Jesus, his Savior, because he knows it's far better to be with him. But he also knows the reality that it's better for the Philippians if he's released and has an opportunity to continue in this partnership of the gospel with him. But either way, friends, Paul is not the point here. His life is not the point. It's either honoring Christ by dying or honoring Christ by living. Though he wants to be with Christ, he wants even more that Christ to be glorified in the Philippians as they, as they grow and they rejoice in Jesus Christ. I find it interesting here, this word depart that he has. It's a nautical term in Greek literature. It's used to describe a, a ship setting loose of its mooring to unloose and to head out to sea. I think of an image of a ship pulling, in, pulling up the anchor so that it loosens and, and when it's, it's about to be pulled out to the sea and, and, and that picture is applied to us as Christians. The time will come to pull up anchor and we will really be free then. Death is like a ship. It takes us to where we really want to go. Spurgeon said, death takes us to the fair havens of the port of peace in the better country where the Lord is now. Friends, a Christian never really dies. They just depart. And Paul is is sharing his heart that he longs for this final voyage home. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And why, Paul? 
because it's far better, he says. It's Paul's dream to finally go home, to be with Jesus. Christian, I don't know if you've forgotten, but heaven is truly our home. And this home is real, and it's quite amazing. It's good to believe in a place that you've never been, but it's even better to get there. It's better yet to even see Christ face to face. And one day, feast together with him and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul longs for this day. If, as Christians, we were ever given the choice, it's better for us to go and be with Christ. Paul says here that he would be with Christ. If, if death came, if departing happened, he would be with Christ immediately. As theologians, we call that the intermediate state, a time of joyful, conscious awareness of being in Christ's presence even before the final state of resurrection. Friends, after death, we have the hope from this passage that we will instantly see Jesus Christ. Instantly. And yet Paul ends this section of sorting out all of his thoughts of, of what's going on in his life. He does this in front of his, his converts. He says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is convinced of this. It's, it's not based on special revelation given to him, but rather the result of a process of reflection and discussion. He's teaching them again on how to reflect on the difficulties of life and how to do it biblically. His great concern above all else is to be in heaven with Jesus, but even as he looks forward to that day on the horizon, he sees his gospel partners in Philippi and he desires to serve them even more. That they would grow in joy in the faith. See, Paul was convinced that the gospel would advance through partnership with other believers. He was convinced of the local church. That is God's method. And so he continues on. See, when, when Christ keeps us in this life, it must mean that there's still work for us to do. There's still yet more. So, have you answered the question yet that I asked at the beginning? For me, for to me to live is blank. What you live for is usually what you die for. Paul's main goal was to advance the gospel no matter where he found himself. What is your main goal in your life? What keeps you getting out of bed each morning? Are you captivated with Christ and what he's done for you, friend? 
How often does the belief that we belong to Jesus Christ enter into your mind during the week? You know, it seems as you read Paul's letters that that this really dominated his thinking and his teaching and his prayers. Paul really never got over his salvation. You don't ever read Paul like, yeah, I was saved, but I've moved on to better things. He always goes back to that. Friend, have you, have you gotten over your salvation? Yeah, I went forward when I was nine. That was great then. But now I'm, you know, doing this thing. Have you gotten over your salvation? Does it captivate you today? You think so highly of yourself that, you know, yeah, of course I'm saved. Or thinking back on what Christ has done for you and the blackness of your own heart. That you can say, God saved me. Even me. I rejected him for so long and he saved me. Friends, when we reflect back, it, it causes us to live differently now. And that we can say with Paul that he never got over his salvation. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ in life or death. Death holds no fear over Christians. Even though death shouldn't be pursued by a Christian, it should give us a reason to rejoice because through death we enter in the presence of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we need to remember that our release from this life brings us in the very presence of Jesus. And yet, this life here on earth has value and it has purpose when our focus is on Him. There is fruit yet to be produced in the lives of us as Christians. So my encouragement to us is to continue on until our Savior brings us home. As Christians, we should be marked with confidence and joy, not in ourselves, but in the gospel of Jesus. And so I pray that as a church family, we would continue to continue in this pursuit in the coming weeks. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place so that we could experience true joy in you. And yet we long to be in your presence fully and our hearts ache for the completion of this life. But until that day, help us to be content in our service to you. Help us to be faithful in the partnerships that we have here as members of this local church. Allow us to serve you joyfully and with hope. And I pray, God, that you would continue to give fruit to us in our ministry for you. We thank you for saving us. We rejoice in the salvation that we've received. And we pray that you would continue to add more to the number here. And that you would continue to use Edgewood Bible Church for your honor and for your glory in this area until you come back for your church. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.